0: Part 1. Smallpox, Mortality, and Vaccination Having been led to inquire for myself as to the effects of vaccination in preventing or diminishing smallpox, I have arrived at results as unexpected as they appear to me to be conclusive. The question is one which affects our personal liberty as well as the health and even the lives of thousands. It therefore becomes a duty to endeavor to make the truth known to all, and especially to those who, on the faith of false or misleading statements, have enforced the practice of vaccination by penal laws. I propose now to establish the following four statements of fact by means of the only official statistics which are available, and I shall adopt a mode of presenting those statistics as a whole, which will render them intelligible to all. These statements are 1. That during the 45 years of the registration of deaths and their causes, smallpox mortality has very slightly diminished, while an exceedingly severe smallpox epidemic occurred within the last 12 years of the period. 2. That there is no evidence to show that the slight decrease of smallpox mortality is due to vaccination. 3 that the severity of smallpox as a disease has not been mitigated by vaccination. For that several inoculable diseases have increased to an alarming extent, coincidentally with enforced vaccination. The first, second, and fourth propositions will be proved from the Registrar General's reports from 1838 to 1882, and I shall make the result clear and indisputable by presenting the figures for the whole period in the form of diagrammatic curves, so that no manipulation of them by taking certain years for comparison or by dividing the period in special ways will be possible. The diagrams show, in each case, not the absolute mortality, but the deaths per million living, a method which eliminates the increase of population and gives true comparative results. Vaccination has not diminished smallpox. Diagram 1 exhibits the deaths from smallpox in London for every year from 1838 to 1882, while an upper line exhibits the deaths from other principal zymotic diseases given in the Registrar General's annual summary for 1882. Except cholera, which is only an occasional epidemic, Namely, scarlet fever and diphtheria, measles, whooping cough, typhoid and other fevers, and diarrhea. A dotted line between these shows the mortality from fevers of the typhoid class. The first thing clearly apparent in this diagram is the very small diminution of smallpox corresponding with the epochs of penal and compulsory vaccination, while the epidemic of 1871 was the most destructive in the whole period. The average diminution of smallpox mortality from the first and second half of the period is 57 deaths per million per annum. Looking now at the upper curve, we see that the mortality from the chief zymotic diseases has also decreased, more especially during the last 35 years. But the decrease of these diseases is not proportionally so great, owing to the fact that deaths from diarrhea have considerably increased in the latter half of this period. On the other hand, typhus and typhoid fevers have diminished to a much greater extent than smallpox, as shown by the dotted line on the diagram, the reduced mortality from this cause along being 382 per million, or more than six times as much as that from smallpox. Everyone will admit that this remarkable decrease of typhus, etc., is due to more efficient sanitation, greater personal attention to the laws of health, and probably also to more rational methods of treatment. But all these causes of amelioration have certainly had their effect on smallpox. And as the mortality from that disease has not equally diminished, there is probably some counteracting cause at work. So far, therefore, from there being any proof that vaccination has diminished smallpox in London, the tendency of the Registrar-General's facts, and there are no other facts which are trustworthy, is to show that some counteracting cause has prevented general sanitation from acting on the disease, as it has acted on typhus, and that cause may possibly be vaccination itself. We will now turn to Diagram 2, which gives a representation of similar statistics for England and Wales, except that unfortunately there is a blank in the record for 1843-46. to in which years the Registrar-General informs us the causes of death were not distinguished. Here, too, we perceive a similar decrease in smallpox mortality, broken by the tremendous epidemic of 1871-72, while the other chief zymotic diseases, represented by the higher line, show more irregularity, but a considerable recent decrease. For all England, as for London, The tables show us that typhoid fevers have decreased far more than smallpox. But for clearness, the curve of typhus is omitted, and we have therefore again no small reason for imputing the decrease in smallpox to vaccination. But we may go further than this negative statement, for we have fortunately a means of directing testing the alleged efficacy of vaccination. The 11th. Annual reports of the local government board gives a table of the number of successful vaccinations at the expense of the poor rate in England and Wales from 1852 to 1881 from the figures of this table I have calculated the numbers in proportion to the population of each year and have exhibited the result in the dotted line on my diagram too and to this I beg to direct the reader's attention since it at once dispels some oft-repeated erroneous statements. In the first place, we see that instead of vaccination having increased since the enforcement of penal laws, it has actually diminished. So that the statement so often made by official apologists for vaccination and repeated by Sir Lyon Playfair in his speech to the House of Commons, June 1883, That the progressive efficiency of legal vaccination has diminished smallpox is absolutely untrue, since there has been a decrease rather than an increase of efficient vaccination. A temporary increase in the number of vaccinations always takes place during an epidemic of smallpox, or when an epidemic is feared. But an examination of the curve of vaccination does not support the statement that it checks the epidemic. On careful inspection, it will be seen that on three separate occasions, a considerable increase in vaccinations was followed by an increase of smallpox. Let the reader look at the diagram and note that in 1863, there was a very great number of vaccinations, followed in 1864 by an increase in smallpox mortality. Again, the number of vaccinations steadily rose from 1866 to 1869, yet in 1870 and 71. Smallpox mortality increased, and yet again in 1876, an increase in vaccinations was followed by an increase of smallpox deaths. In fact, if the dotted line showed inoculation instead of vaccination, it might be used to prove that inoculation caused an increase of smallpox. I only maintain, however, that it does not prove that vaccination diminishes the mortality from the disease. During the panic caused by the great epidemic of 1871 and 72, vaccinations rose enormously and declined as rapidly the moment the epidemic passed away. But there is nothing whatever to show that the increased vaccinations had any effect on the disease, which ran its course and then died out like other epidemics. It has now been proved from the only complete series of official records that exist. One that smallpox has not decreased so much or so steadily as typhus and allied fevers. Two, that the diminution of smallpox mortality coincides with a diminished instead of an increased efficiency of official vaccination. And three, that one of the most severe epidemics of smallpox on record, within the period of accurate statistics, occurred after 33 years of official compulsory and penal vaccination. These three groups of facts give no support to the assertion that vaccination has diminished smallpox mortality. And it must always be remembered that we have actually no other extensive body of statistics on which to found our judgment. The utility or otherwise of vaccination is purely a question of statistics. It remains for us to decide whether we will be guided by the only trustworthy statistics we possess or continue blindly to accept the dogmas of an interested and certainly not infallible body of professional men, who once upheld inoculation as strongly as they now uphold vaccination. Smallpox has not been mitigated by vaccination. It is often asserted that although vaccination is not a complete protection against smallpox, yet it diminishes the severity of the disease and renders it less dangerous to those who take it, this assertion is sufficiently answered by the proof above given that it has not diminished smallpox mortality, but more direct evidence can be adduced. The best available records show that the proportion of deaths to smallpox cases is the same now, although a large majority of the population are vaccinated. As it was a century ago before vaccination was discovered. Dr. Jurin in 1723, the London Smallpox Hospital Reports, 1746 to 63, Dr. Lambert, 1763, and Rees, Cyclopedia, 1779, give numbers varying from 16.5 to 25.3 as the percentage of mortality among smallpox patients in hospitals the average of the whole thing being 18.8%. Now for the epoch of vaccination, Mr. Marson, 1836-51, and the reports of London, Homerton, Deptford, Fulham, and Dublin smallpox hospitals between 1870 and 1880 give numbers varying from 14.26 to 21.7 as the deaths percent. Of smallpox patients, the average being 18.5, and this be it remembered under the improved treatment and hygiene of the 19th as compared with the 18th century. These figures not only demonstrate the falsehood of the oft-repeated assertion that vaccination mitigates smallpox, but they go far to prove the very opposite, that the disease has been rendered more intractable by it. Or how can we account for the mortality among smallpox patients being almost exactly the same now as a century ago, notwithstanding the great advance of medical science and the improvements in hospitals and hospital treatment? Smallpox in the Army and Navy Here we have a crucial test of the efficacy or uselessness of vaccination our soldiers and sailors are vaccinated and revaccinated in accordance with the most stringent official regulations they are exceptionally strong and healthy men in the prime of life and if vaccination is of any use smallpox should be almost unknown among them and no soldier or sailor should ever die of it they are in fact often spoken of as a perfectly protected population now let us see what are the facts A return has been issued to the House of Commons, Smallpox, Army and Navy, dated August 1884, given the mean strength, the number of deaths from smallpox, and the ratio per thousand in each service for the 23 years, 1860 to 82. An examination of this return shows us that there has not been a single year without two or more deaths in the Army only two years without deaths in the Navy. Comparing the return on vaccination mortality, number 433, issued by the House of Commons in 1877, we find that in the 23 years, 1850 to 72, the latest there given, there were many years in which no adult smallpox deaths were recorded for a number of large towns of from 100,000 to 270,000 inhabitants. Liverpool had none in three of the years, Birmingham and Sunderland in seven, Bradford and Sheffield in eight, Halifax in nine, Dudley in ten, while Blackburn and Wolverhampton were each totally without adult smallpox mortality for 11 out of the 23 years. It is true that the cases are not strictly comparable because for these towns we have only deaths of persons aged 20 and upwards, given separately whereas the ages of the army and navy range chiefly from about 17 to 45. But considering the extremely unsanitary state of many of these towns and their great preponderance and freedom from smallpox, there is clearly no room left for the alleged effect of revaccination in securing to our soldiers and sailors immunity from the disease. But let us now look at the averages for the whole series of years as affording the best and only reliable test. On working these out carefully, I find the mean smallpox mortality for the 23 years to be in the Army 82.96, which we may call 83 per million, and in the Navy 157 per million. Unfortunately, no material exists for an exact comparison of these rates with those of the civil population, but with much labour I have made the best comparison I can arrive at. From the Census General Report 1881 and the reports of the Registrar General for the same 23 years as are included in the Army and Navy return, I have been able to ascertain the smallpox mortality of males in England and Wales between the years 15, and 55, taken as best representing those of the two services, and the result is a mean smallpox death rate of 176 per million. It will be observed that this is but little more than the Navy mortality, although more than double that of the Army, and the question arises, to what is the difference due? And first, why is the smallpox mortality in the Navy nearly double that of the army? The regulations as to revaccination are the same in both, and are in both rigidly enforced, and the men are pretty equal in stamina and general health. The cause must therefore be in the different conditions of life of the two services. And it seems to me a probable supposition that the difference arises chiefly from the less efficient ventilation and isolation which are possible on board ship as compared with army hospitals. The general mortality of the Navy from disease appears, from the Registrar-General's Report, 1882, Tables 59 and 65, to be considerably less than that of the Army, so that the greater mortality from smallpox must be due to some special conditions. But whatever these are, the conditions of the civil population are certainly much worse. Two-thirds of the families inhabiting Glasgow Live in houses of one or two rooms only, and many other towns, including London, are probably not much better. Under such conditions, and with low vitality, induced by insufficient food, overwork, and bad air, we should expect the smallpox mortality of our civil population to be very much greater than that of the picked class of sailors who enjoy ample food, fresh air, and medical attendance. Where, then, is the alleged full security? afforded by revaccination? And how are we to characterize the statements circulated at the expense of the public that smallpox is almost unknown in the Army and Navy? If we are to draw a legitimate conclusion from the facts, it is that the revaccination to which our soldiers and sailors are subjected renders smallpox more fatal when it attacks them. For thus only can we explain the large mortality among picked. To healthy men under constant medical supervision and living under far better sanitary conditions than the mass of the civil population. One other mode of comparison can be made, showing that even the army smallpox death rate is but little better than that of some large towns during the same period. The rate per million for the adult population between ages of 15 and 55 on an average of the years 1860 to 82. For five very large towns was as follows. Manchester, population three hundred and forty thousand two hundred and eleven in eighteen eighty two, one hundred and thirty one per million, Leeds, population three hundred and fifteen thousand nine hundred and ninety eight, one hundred and nineteen per million, Brighton, population one hundred and nine thousand five hundred ninety-five, one hundred and fourteen per million, Bradford, two hundred thousand one fifty eight. 104 per million, and Oldham, 115, 572, 89 per million. Of course, there are many other towns which have a much higher mortality, but very few are much worse than the Navy. The very worst large town which I can find in the reports is Newcastle on Tyne, which for the same period had an adult smallpox mortality of 349 per million. But the fact that five of our most populous towns have considerably less adult smallpox mortality than the Navy, and one of them but little more than the Army, amounts to a demonstration of the uselessness of the most complete revaccination. The general mortality of our adult population is much greater than that of the Army and Navy. From the official sources of information already quoted, I find that the average mortality of the adult male population of England. Of the ages 15 to 55 for the years 1860 to 82, was about 11,300 per million. That of the Navy for the same period was 11,000 per million from all causes and only 7,150 from disease. That of the Army at home was 10,300 per million. Abroad, it was nearly double, 19,400 but this included all the deaths from casualties, exposure, etc., in the Abyssinian, Afghan, Zulu, Transvaal, and other petty wars. Thus, the superior physique of our soldiers and sailors, together with the sanitary conditions under which they live, are fully manifested in a mortality from disease much below that of the adult civil population of comparable ages. If we make the same allowance for the influence of these causes in the case of smallpox, there remains absolutely nothing for the alleged protective influence of revaccination. Surely we shall now hear no more of the revaccinated nurses and smallpox hospitals, as to whom we have no statistics but only vague and usually inaccurate assertions. When we have a great, officially recorded experiment to refer to, extending over 23 years and applied to more than 200,000 men, results of which directly contradict every professional and official statement as to the safeguard of revaccination. Vaccination itself, a cause of disease and death. As has been now shown, vaccination is quite powerless either to prevent or to mitigate smallpox. But this is not all, for there are good grounds for believing that it is itself the cause of much disease and serious mortality. It was long denied by medical men that syphilis can be communicated by vaccination. But this is now universally admitted, and no less than 478 cases of vaccine syphilis have already been recorded. But there is also good reason to believe that many other blood diseases are transmitted and increased by the same means, since there has been for many years a steady increase of mortality from such diseases, which is terrible to contemplate. The following table gives the increase of five of these diseases from the Registrar General's annual report for 1880, page 79, table 34, and it is very noteworthy that in the long list of maladies there tabulated, no others except bronchitis, which often follows vaccination, though not probably transmitted by it show any striking and continuous increase, while the great majority are either stationary or decreasing. Annual deaths in England per million living. There's a table here that has uh, eight columns, average of five years, and then 1850, 1855, 1860, 1865, 1870, 1875, 1880. They have smallpox, syphilis, cancer, tabbies, mesenterica, pymia, etc., and skin disease, with the totals and the progressive increase. We here see a constant increase in the mortality from each of these diseases, an increase which in the sum of them is steady and continuous. It is true we have not, and cannot have, direct proof that vaccination is the sole cause of this increase, but we have good reason to believe that it is the chief cause. In the first place, it is a vera causa, since it directly inoculates infants and adults on an enormous scale and whatever blood disease may exist unsuspected in the system of the infants from whom the vaccine virus is taken. In the next place, no other adequate cause has been adduced for the remarkably continuous increase of these special diseases, which the spread of sanitation, of cleanliness, and of advanced medical knowledge should have rendered both less frequent and less fatal. The increased deaths from these five causes from 1855 to 1880 exceed the total deaths from smallpox during the same period. So that even if the latter disease had been totally abolished by vaccination, the general mortality would have been increased and there is much reason to believe that the increase may have been caused by vaccination itself. Thank you for listening to this sample. To continue listening to this book and for access to all of our other full audiobooks, please subscribe for $7.77 per month. Go to adultbrain.ca or follow the link in the show notes. This will be a completely separate podcast with a new RSS feed and will have all the titles from this feed as well. Thank you for your help and support in bringing rare and forgotten books to audio for the world.